The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. I want to welcome you in the name of Jesus this morning. And I want to thank you so much for being here. This is an exciting time of year when we've got our college students kind of trickling back in and lots of new faces. Uh, So if this is your uh, first Sunday back at the Springs in a while or just your first Sunday at the Springs, I want to extend one more last minute invitation to the United in Christ food drive and time of worship tonight at Green Pastures Church of Christ. Uh, So You might know that at the Springs we organize ourselves around three G's, gather, grow, and go. And it's hard for me to think of an event that would cover more fully those three G's, I think, all in one event. So we're going to be gathering some food for the uh, children of the Green Pastures Elementary School, and we're going to be worshiping outdoors, so you will want to bring some outdoor seating. And if you want to come to that, we're going to be meeting out in the parking lot here at 445 um, tonight. So please feel free to come. Even if you don't have any food, come worship. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. So I hope you'll join us for that. And I also want to specifically invite you uh, to be here next Sunday morning, same bat time, same bat channel, here in the auditorium. And we are going to be launching our new sermon series called You Are What You Love. Uh, Ben talked about this last week, and we are going to be talking about human beings, not primarily as thinkers, but as lovers. And so we'll be talking about Christian worship practices, everything that we've been doing this morning, and how that shapes our loves, shapes our desires, and points those toward the kingdom of God. Uh, So each Sunday is going to be devoted to a different aspect of corporate worship. It'll be singing and preaching and confessing and praying and all of those things. And we're going to talk about how that shapes who we are by shaping what we love. Uh, So I hope you'll be there for that next Sunday, August 27. Ben's going to be preaching the intro sermon. And it's going to kind of set up the framework for the whole thing. So I hope you can be there. And I'm really, really excited for this series. But that means we're finishing another series this morning, the Word of the Lord series. And for the last eight weeks, we have been uh, preaching through the Revised Common Lectionary, the texts that have been laid out. We've also had them other texts at the Communion Homily from the Lectionary and read during the service. And uh, I, I've enjoyed this. I've enjoyed the, the breadth and diversity of the scripture that I think we've engaged during this series. Because if you remember, we started out in Matthew, we started out in Romans, uh, we went to the Psalms, we went to Genesis, we were in 1 Kings, and this morning we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. Uh, So when you think about the, the breadth of genres that we've covered from that, we've got gospel, epistle, poetry, Pentateuch, prophecy, so many things, and so I'm excited to uh, finish up, wrap up this series with you this morning in Isaiah chapter 56. And if you want to turn over in your Bibles, we're in Isaiah 56 this morning, verse 1 and verses 6 through 8. So I'll read our text, I'll say the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. 
Let's begin in verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them, besides those already gathered. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. And we proclaim that you are the God who gathers. You are the God who reaches to the outskirts, to the fringe, beyond the pale. Lord, you are the God who gathers us, and you have gathered us here this morning to worship you, to magnify your goodness and love, your greatness, and to speak a word of encouragement to one another in Christ. God, I ask you for the gift of preaching this morning, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and ears and hearts and tongues as we see and listen and feel and sing your goodness and grace. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray and worship. Amen. I've never sung the song Sanctuary like I sang it in Hiroshima. It was eight years ago, this October, and I was on the Pacific Rim Study Abroad program, and I had found myself in the city of Hiroshima in the country of Japan, the very first city to be atomic bombed. And I've never sung the song Sanctuary like I'd sang it that day. Many of you know that on August 6, 1945, 70,000 people died instantly from the blast. And another 70,000 received fatal injuries from the radiation. And the museum that day for me in October was a watershed moment in my life because I'd never really considered the horror from that side of the ocean. I saw artifacts and and pictures of unimaginable terror, of unthinkable suffering. Shadows of children emblazoned on brick walls who had been vaporized in an instant. But one of the most memorable moments from that day was outside the Hiroshima Peace Memorial, outside, underneath the dome of a building that had survived the blast somehow. And we were singing in a devotional, and we got to the song Sanctuary, and I'd never really 
known the gravity of those lyrics in verse 3. Lord, teach your children to stop the fighting. Start uniting as one. And I'd never really sung that song until I sang it that day. And I appreciated Ben's eloquent rejection of racism and white supremacy and hate last week. And I join him in that. And I also appreciated his call for us to come to these tables of peace, especially in light of growing nuclear threats in our world. Because events like last weekend and the events that really we witness every single day are reminders that the justice of God has not fully been achieved. That the righteousness of God has not fully been seen in our lives. And that the salvation of God remains already, but not yet. And as you know, there are different ways that we can respond to this, right? We can respond with apathy. Uh, We can respond with insulation, cutting ourselves off from these realities. Or we can respond with hopelessness, uh, with the refusal to believe that things could ever be put right. But I think you're going to find this morning that our text, Isaiah 56, pushes back on all of that. Our text, Isaiah 56, pushes back on the apathy, pushes back on the insulation, and pushes back on the hopelessness by declaring to us the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. And so I I want to look at God's salvation in Isaiah 56 with you in three different parts. I want to look at salvation's demands salvation's expanse, and salvation's advance. If you're taking notes, that's the demands, the expanse, and the advance of God's salvation in Isaiah chapter 56 this morning. I I didn't mean for it to spell D-E-A, but if that helps you remember it, then more power to you. But let's begin with salvation's demands in Isaiah 56. Let me read verse 1 once again. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. So I think the thing we need to notice about the language in this passage is that these words righteousness and justice are are actually basically the same thing. That, you know, in our English language, righteousness and justice are quite different. They're quite different concepts and words, and Ben talked a little about this in our Beatitudes series, but in English, you know, righteousness kind of falls on our ears as a little bit stuffy, as kind of a a nod toward moralism or legalism of some sort, as a nod toward strictures and regulations, but that's not the case in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, righteousness and justice are basically interchangeable. They're actually essentially the same word group, and they're they're like the two symbols crashing together of a skilled percussionist, Ezra or Sidney. And so righteousness and justice, they they come together, and, and not only are they basically interchangeable, 
but they're actually coupled together so often in the Old Testament. For instance, Amos 5, 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God's righteousness and justice refer to the same thing, and here's what it is. They refer to God's ability to put right what has been wrong. God's ability. It's, more, it's almost more like a verb than a noun. God's righteousness and justice is God's ability to put right what has been wrong. So with that in mind, let me read verse 1 one more time in the ESV. It says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Did you notice that? Righteousness is not only what God does in the second half of the verse. Righteousness is also how we respond in the first half of the verse. Righteousness is not only what God does, it's also our response. So so put another way, we are not audience, but actors. In the drama of God's salvation, we are not sitting up in the mezzanine, way up in the balcony, just desperately trying to stay awake. We are on the stage in the thick of the action. God has, has called us to participate in the salvation, in the justice and righteousness that he is revealing and doing. And of course, God is the primary actor. God is the director and the playwright and the producer and the financier. But God calls us to participate, to respond with our own justice and righteousness and acts of salvation. Because I think sometimes, if we're being honest, we tend to rationalize in the opposite direction of our text. You know, we tend to think, well, God's got this covered, so I'm good. You know, God's got this covered. His salvation is at hand, so I can just kind of sit back on my laurels. Actually, my father-in-law likes to say, maybe you've heard this joke, uh, regarding the end times, uh, that he's not a post-millennialist or an amillennialist, he's a pan-millennialist because he thinks it's all just going to pan out in the end. And there's a sense to which that, that, that is true. Of course, God is going to put things right. We have to believe that, and our text tells us that. But that is not an invitation to take a nap. That is an invitation to get up and respond. We are audience, not audience, but actors. And so this brings us to our second point this morning, salvation's expanse. Let me uh, finish the chapter for us, verses 6 through 8, our passage. It says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." Sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. 
I think to get at this section of the text, we need just a little bit of historical context. So most people date the writing of Isaiah 56 after the exile, in the post-exilic area of of the Israelite history. Uh, So if you'll remember, in in 5th century B.C., uh, the Babylonian Empire scattered the Israelites. It was a forced migration. They, They went into exile and they were scattered throughout different nations in the region. So this chapter is written after that. This chapter is written as Israelites are are returning to their homeland of Jerusalem and as they are actually starting to rebuild the temple. So with that context, verse 8, it says, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So God is saying it's not just these returning Israelites It is more. It is beyond that. This is an expansion of God's salvation. He is opening up to those outside of Israel. And and this is quite a radical expansion, actually. Uh, Because this means that God's house is a house of prayer for all peoples. Uh, This means that instead of just purebred male Israelites getting into the inner sanctums of the temple. It means that others are finally allowed in. It means that Gentiles, that non-Jews, are allowed in God's house. And, And here's something else that it means, I think. It means that God's salvation crosses borders. God's salvation crosses borders. It means that a politically charged gathering of of nationalities and peoples often antagonistic to one another was going to take place in God's temple in Jerusalem. You know, imagine Westerners in our day headed to a house of worship in Iran or North Korea. It's that kind of of radical picture. These kind of intense border crossings happening, that is the vision of our text in Isaiah 56. Border crossings that could cause a whole heap of trouble for the status quo that could ignite these political and national identities. But God says, I'm going to bring them to my mountain. He says, I'm going to give them joy in my house of prayer. This is salvation's expanse. And I think sometimes there might be this kind of underlying narrative that I want to push back on for a moment, that that Christianity is the enemy of diversity, that that Christianity squashes multiculturalism and kind of forces people into, into this one homogenous mold. Because the reality is, Interestingly enough, uh, unlike most religions whose demographic centers have essentially remained in the same places where they began, the demographic center of Christianity has, has moved and modulated throughout its history. Uh, so obviously it, it started uh, as a highly Jewish movement in the center of Jerusalem. Uh, and, but from there it quickly spread to the, the Hellenists around the Mediterranean region. And then it eventually took root with the barbarians of northern Europe. And so the center sort of moved to Europe and eventually moved to North America. And we get to today, 
And the center of Christianity is increasingly Africa, Latin America, Asia. For instance, there there are actually more Presbyterians in the nation of, of Ghana than America and Scotland combined. And Korea has gone from 100 years ago, 1% Christian, to 40%. These are the the kind of radical border crossings that we see happening with the people of God, that we see happening with the gospel. And just to give you a visual sense of this gravity, I I wanted to to give you a map this morning. And this is a, a, a weighted population distribution of Christianity in the year 1910. Uh, So rather than being their actual geographical size, the maps are uh, sized based on how many Christians lived there in that year. So you can see that the the gold of Europe is clearly at the center of things. It's the largest one, and the kind of upper blue North American part is kind of close behind it. But notice how tiny the the little red dots are and, and how tiny the little purple area is. Fast forward 100 years, 2010, things have changed. Obviously, the entire population of the world has ballooned, but take a look at Latin America, at South America in the blue, and and specifically the the little red and the purple for Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia Pacific has, has just become enormous. In just a hundred years, the the center of Christianity has just drastically changed and it continues to shift and grow beyond what anyone could conceive or predict. Now, I'm not touting all of this growth and diversity as a way to kind of pat ourselves on the back this morning. There are areas on the map that are, that are stagnant. This is, this is not some kind of triumphalistic, you know, look how great we are, some kind of attaboy. But what I'm simply trying to reiterate is that God's salvation has power to cross borders. God's salvation, try as we might to kind of keep it locked in this narrow American mold that we have, it continues to break free. It continues to move and change. It goes behind enemy lines and reveals that they were never our enemies by the gospel of Jesus. God's salvation crosses borders. And and to end this, this second point here, I just want to read seven lines from a poem called The Border by Alberto Rios. Because I, I think it actually captures the way that we try to draw lines around the kingdom of God that the Spirit refuses to obey. The border is a line that birds cannot see. The border is a beautiful piece of paper folded carelessly in half. The border is where flint first met steel, starting a century of fires. The border is a belt that is too tight, holding things up, but making it hard to breathe. The border is a rusted hinge that does not bend. The border is the blood clot in the river's vein. The border says stop to the wind, but the wind speaks another language and keeps going. To proclaim 
salvation's expanse is to speak the language of the wind. It's to speak the language of God's pneuma, his breath, wind, Holy Spirit. And it is to say that salvation crosses borders. It can't be contained. The kingdom's expanse. And so this brings us to our third and final point this morning. Let me read once again verse 1 from Isaiah 56 from a commentator's translation. It says, Yahweh has said this, Guard the exercise of judgment. Act in faithfulness, because my deliverance is near to coming, my faithfulness to manifesting. And it is this language of nearness, this language of full manifestation that reaches its fruition and finds echoes in Mark chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The salvation announced by Isaiah has advanced upon the world in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, in the person and work of Jesus, God's kingdom has drawn near. In the person and work of Jesus, the triune God has turned upon us, the outcasts, the enemies, the foreigners, and he has said, come, find room in your father's house. He said, come, pray in a house of prayer for all nations. And he said, come, see the advance of my kingdom on earth as in heaven. See the good news. And that good news is that Jesus Christ has revealed the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ has achieved the justice of God. And Jesus Christ has advanced the kingdom on the cross and in the resurrection. God is is gathering us beyond those already gathered. So my question is, have you been gathered? Have you allowed God to pull you near as an outcast, to draw you close and say, we're not enemies, we're friends? That is what God has done in Jesus Christ, church. The time is fulfilled, repent and believe in the good news. Let's stand and sing together this morning.